0: If you're into podcasts like I am, you may have considered starting a podcast of your own. And what better time than right now? Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show to talk about American history and awesome bourbon, podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Take it from me. There's a lot of options out there, and it can be hard to figure out the best option for you. How do you get on podcast directories? How do you monetize? Buzzsprout takes the stress of starting a podcast away by helping you navigate through each step of the process. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how many people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Podcasting isn't hard if you have the right partners. Do what I did, and join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Follow the link in the episode notes to get started today. Hello, and welcome back to Bourbon and History, the presidential ranking series. This week, We travel back to the modern period to discuss one of the nation's more recent presidents. Coming to office during a time of increased partisan divide, both within Congress and throughout the nation, this president hoped to introduce a new message of unity, advancing two phrases that would come to define his campaign, hope and change. But during his time in office, foreign policy defeats, combined with the widening divide between left and right— would lead to a mostly obstructed second term in office, with petty political battles and wild conspiracy theories overshadowing his legislative accomplishments, significantly hindering his overall ability to govern, and ending any hope of uniting a fractured America. This is episode 24 and number 18 on my rankings, Barack Obama, 2009-2017, 47 years old, a Democrat from Hawaii. As the nation's first African American president, Barack Obama represented a significant shift in the way Americans were viewing their presidents. The popular image of the older, stately white male who looked presidential was beginning to fade, and a new breed of politician was beginning to take shape. The image of a popular, outsider politician, elected on a platform of shaking things up within the government, resonated with many Americans, and indeed, not only Obama, but his successor, Donald Trump would use the outsider image to their advantage, claiming that as outsiders, only they could affect real change in Washington. But as what would eventually happen with Trump in the late 2010s, Obama soon realized that running for president and being president were very different things, and affecting actual significant and lasting change within Washington was easier said than done. Barack Obama was born on August 4, 1961, in Honolulu, Hawaii, making him the only president to be born outside the continuous United States. A few weeks after being born, the young Obama moved with his mother to Seattle, while his father finished working on his economics degree in Hawaii. But following his graduation in June of 1962, Obama's father then moved to Boston to earn his master's at Harvard. This would begin what would become a mostly estranged relationship between Barack and his father, as his parents would divorce in 1964 and his father would move back to Kenya. Obama would see his father only once before his death in an automobile accident in 1982. Barack's mother, Ann Dunham, remarried in 1965 and relocated with Barack to Indonesia in 1967. From age 6 to 10, Obama attended local Indonesian language schools, which I won't even begin to try and pronounce, as well as a few years of homeschooling from his mother. And this makes Obama unique amongst American presidents. Sure, some past presidents had traveled extensively abroad for parts of their childhood, notably the young John Quincy Adams, who was sent off to Russia by his father as a teenager— But no president had fully grown up outside of the United States the way Barack Obama had, which likely gave him a unique perspective on foreign cultures other presidents didn't have. In 1971, Obama returned to Hawaii to live with his maternal grandparents. He attended a private prep school and graduated in 1979, during which time he alternated between living with his mother, who had returned to Hawaii to finish her graduate degree in anthropology, and his grandparents. His mother would ultimately return to Indonesia with his half-sister in 1975 to begin anthropology fieldwork and spend most of the next two decades there before dying of ovarian cancer in 1995. After graduating high school, Obama moved to Los Angeles and attended Occidental College. He transferred to Columbia in 1981, majoring in political science and graduating in 1983. He worked a number of different jobs during this period, including as a financial researcher and writer, project coordinator, and legal associate. He also met his wife, Michelle, during this time, and the two were married in 1992. It was also during this time Obama was hired as director of the Developing Communities Project, a church-based community organization comprising a number of different parishes in and around Chicago. He worked at this position from 1985 until 1989, helping to set up job training programs, college preparatories, tutoring programs, and tenants' rights organizations. After turning down a full scholarship to attend law school at Northwestern, Obama attended Harvard Law in 1988 and was selected editor of the Harvard Law Review at the end of his first year and president following his second year, the first African American to hold the position. After graduating from Harvard in 1991, Obama moved back to Chicago, where he soon published his first book, dreams of my father. That same year, Obama accepted a position as visiting law and government fellow at the University of Chicago Law School to work on his first book, which soon turned into a teaching position teaching constitutional law, a role he would hold for the next 12 years. Now, I won't name off all the different jobs and positions Obama would hold during this time in his life because there's quite a few. But needless to say, Obama continued to be very active with the black community throughout Chicago during this time while continuing to lecture and teach at the University of Chicago Law School. But the law was not the only area Obama was focused on. In 1996, he ran for the Illinois State Senate and won, representing the Illinois 13th District, which spanned most of Chicago's south side. Once elected, the new state senator began pushing through a number of reform measures, winning bipartisan support for legislation that reformed ethics and health care laws, while also supporting legislation to increase tax credits for low-income workers and increased subsidies for childcare. Obama would go on to be re-elected in 1998 and 2002, though he did lose a bid for Congress in 2000. Now, it's at this point Obama begins his meteoric rise first in Illinois and then within the Democratic Party. And this rise will begin with his formal announcement to run for the U.S. Senate in 2003. With the previous Republican and Democratic incumbents choosing not to participate in the election, the field for both parties was wide open, and Obama found himself winning the Democratic primary in a surprise landslide, immediately propelling him to national acclaim within the Democratic ranks. All of this culminated with Obama giving the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in Boston that summer, which was widely heralded as a precursor to a possible presidential run in the future. That November, Obama won the Senate seat in a landslide, receiving 70% of the vote, the largest margin of victory for a Senate candidate in Illinois history. While in the Senate, Obama served on various committees, including Foreign Relations and the VA and sponsored numerous legislation to create more transparency in campaign spending, which resulted in passage of the Federal Funding Accountability and Transparency Act of 2006. But Obama wasn't satisfied with just sitting around in the Senate for the next few decades. He had his sights set on higher office. And in February of 2007, he announced his candidacy for president in front of the old state capitol building in Springfield, Illinois, the same site Abraham Lincoln, had delivered his famous House Divided speech back in 1858. His platform was simple and straightforward, end the war in Iraq, increase energy independence, and reform the nation's flailing healthcare system. But Obama soon realized his path to the Democratic nomination wasn't going to be as easy as he had hoped. Remember, aside from a failed bid for Congress in 2000, Obama's political career had been a series of blowouts over his political rivals, And in late 2007, Obama, who was already well-known and liked throughout Democratic circles across the country, felt his nomination was a lock. However, another giant within the Democratic field was about to enter the race and thwart Obama's plans for an easy victory. And her name was Senator Hillary Clinton of New York. Clinton was already well-known and well-funded by 2008, having served for eight years as First Lady during the presidency of her husband, Bill Clinton, and then being elected Senator from New York in 2000. Clinton was a formidable opponent, and it's likely Obama was caught off guard by her strength early on as she slowly mounted a substantial comeback throughout the 2008 primaries, leading to a close race going into the summer. But luckily for Obama, his campaign had better fundraising, which allowed him to stick it out deep into the primary season, unlike Clinton, who was soon struggling to remain financially afloat by May. On June 7th, it was all over. With Obama leading handedly in pledged delegates, Clinton suspended her campaign. The path to the Democratic nomination was now wide open for Obama. At the Democratic convention in Denver that August, both Clintons gave speeches endorsing Obama. And he won the nomination easily, with Senator Joe Biden of Delaware selected as his running mate. Going into the 2008 election season, many pundits had predicted an easy victory for the Democrats. With two wars going poorly and the economy beginning to lag, the presidency of the incumbent Republican president, George W. Bush, was widely being viewed as an abysmal failure, making the White House all but assured to fall into Democratic hands. But a number of events transpired over the course of 2008 that soon gave hope to Republicans. The first was the nomination of Senator John McCain of Arizona as the party's nominee. McCain was viewed as a maverick who was willing to break with his party on various important issues, which made him appealing to the independent voters. The second was the long-drawn-out primary between Clinton and Obama that had been extremely divisive at times and gave the appearance of disunity within the Democratic ranks— The final issue was Obama's lack of executive experience. Remember, Obama had been a state senator just four years earlier and had only served four years in the U.S. Senate. McCain, on the other hand, had a lengthy record of public service, had already run for president in 2000, and had served honorably as a fighter pilot during the Vietnam War. But unfortunately for Republicans, as the summer of 2008 wound down and the fall campaign season heated up, errors of their own would soon plague them and destroy any small chance they had at defeating the populist Obama. The first major error was the selection of Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, who, when compared with Obama, made the latter look like an elder statesman of advanced years. Palin was quirky, out of touch with basic domestic and foreign policy agendas, and lacked basic understanding of present-day issues. Worse, Obama was an extremely good public speaker, while McCain often fumbled words or forgot points he was trying to make. But the final nail in the Republican coffin came with the financial collapse of 2008, which made the campaign solely about how each candidate could rescue the flailing U.S. economy. Obama, who remained poised and confident throughout October, reassured Americans of his economic policies and promised to bail out the Wall Street banks once elected. McCain, on the other hand, seemed lost and often had no response to questions of how he would handle the economic catastrophe once he was elected. In November, voters made it clear who they preferred to lead them through the crisis. Obama won 365 electoral votes to just 173 for McCain. The popular vote was even more decisive, with Obama capturing 53.7% of the vote, nearly 10 million more than McCain. His overall vote total of 69 million would stand as the largest amount ever received by a presidential candidate until 2020, when Donald Trump would reach 74 million and Joe Biden would set the new high mark with 81 million. And for a little extra trivia, Obama also became just the third sitting U.S. Senator to move directly from the Senate to the White House, the others being our old friend Warren G. Harding from Episode 4 and John F. Kennedy. Barack Obama was inaugurated as the 44th president on January 20, 2009. His first 100 days saw a flurry of executive orders, mostly aimed at repealing Bush-era programs, though a bid to close the U.S. detention facility in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, ultimately failed after Congress failed to appropriate the necessary funding. Obama also focused on expanding rights for gay Americans pushing for and eventually signing the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal act of 2010, ending the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy that had prevented gays and lesbians from serving openly in the U.S. armed forces. In 2012, Obama became the first sitting U.S. president to support same-sex marriage and pushed for the repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act. But the biggest priority for Obama in his first year was grappling with the nation's economic crisis – which had continually grown worse since October of 2008. On February 17, 2009, Obama signed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009, a $787 billion economic stimulus package aimed at helping the economy to recover. In March, Obama directed his Treasury Secretary, Timothy Geithner, to begin using the federal government to buy up depreciated real estate assets to hopefully rescue the fledgling mortgage market. Also in March, Obama directed the federal government to bail out auto giants Chrysler and GM, which allowed for the sale of Chrysler to fiat and the government taking a temporary 60% stake in GM. Obama also tackled the growing federal deficit crisis, signing into law the Budget Control Act of 2011, which enforced limits on discretionary spending until 2021, established a procedure to increase the debt limit created a Congressional Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction to propose even further cuts in spending, as well as a number of other policies aimed at curbing the deficit and saving an estimated $1.5 trillion in budgetary spending. But despite these aggressive federal actions, the economy continued to sputter, with unemployment remaining well above 9% into 2011. By 2012, it would still be above 7%, leading some to speculate whether Obama's aggressive actions had had any meaningful effect. The other major concern for Obama was health care. During the campaign, Obama had pledged to reform the nation's health care system by covering the uninsured, capping premiums, and allowing people to retain existing health care coverage. The resulting legislation, dubbed the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, would become the main issue going into the 2010 midterm elections, with Republicans standing firmly opposed to any kind of public option or mandate for insurance. After stripping the bill of the public option, Senate Democrats passed it by a strict party-line vote, 60-39, to 39, followed by the House, 219-212. Obama signed the act into law on March 21, 2010. Democrats hailed the law as a landmark achievement, deserving the same recognition as Medicare and Social Security. But for others, mostly Republicans, the ACA would become a rallying cry to regain control of Congress back from the Democrats later that year. The resulting midterm elections in November became a massacre for Democrats, with Republicans winning 63 seats in the House. With the opposition firmly in control of Congress, Obama was forced to shift his agenda to a more moderate tone, very much the way Bill Clinton had had to do in the mid-1990s. With his signature legislation finally achieved, and with Republicans now in control of Congress, Obama hoped that news from overseas could help swing things more in his favor going into the 2012 election. Since 2001, the terrorist leader of al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, had been at the top of America's most wanted list— George W. Bush had tried desperately to apprehend him during his two terms in office, but Bin Laden had constantly found the ability to slip away from U.S. forces, usually taking refuge in Pakistan. But intelligence obtained by the CIA in July 2010 led to the discovery of the secret compound Bin Laden was using outside Islamabad, the Pakistani capital. After receiving the briefing in March of 2011, Obama had refused to order a bombing of the compound choosing instead to use a more surgical approach by sending in United States Navy SEALs. That operation took place on May 1, 2011, and resulted in the shooting death of bin Laden, as well as the seizure of papers, computer drives, and disks from the compound. As news spread throughout the nation that bin Laden was finally dead, celebrations broke out in New York City and Washington. As Americans could finally breathe a sigh of relief, the mass murderer responsible for the 9-11 terrorist attacks Was dead. But any positive boost in the polls Obama received in the handling of bin Laden was quickly negated by other foreign policy defeats abroad. Syria had descended into a civil war, with the Syrian president, Bashir Assad, flaunting Obama's warning of a red line if the Syrian dictator began using chemical weapons on his people. Instead, Obama wavered and eventually backed a Russian brokered deal for Assad to give up his chemical weapons, though the regime continued to use chlorine gas. In Libya, on Obama's orders, U.S. airstrikes had taken out Libyan air defenses, leading to the collapse of the Libyan government under Muammar Gaddafi, an action Obama would later remark was the worst mistake of his presidency. And finally, there was the terrorist organization ISIS, which had grown out of civil war-ravaged Syria and begun ground operations in Iraq by mid-2014. Though Obama did launch airstrikes and help significantly reduce the group's holdings in Iraq and Syria by 2017, many criticized Obama's initial handling of the crisis and his delayed response to ISIS land gains in Iraq in early 2014. Perhaps the most notable achievement for Obama in foreign policy was the so-called Cuban thaw in 2014, which led to the reopening of relations between the United States and Cuba, after nearly 60 years of detente. On July 1st, 2015, Obama announced that formal diplomatic relations would resume between the two countries and embassies would be opened in both Havana and Washington. And in March of 2016, Obama became the first sitting president to visit Havana since Calvin Coolidge back in 1928. Obama left office on January 20th, 2017, Shortly after that, the JFK Presidential Library and Museum awarded him the prestigious Profile in Courage Award for his enduring commitment to democratic ideals. Throughout the remainder of 2017, he gave a handful of speeches and addresses, even meeting with German Chancellor Angela Merkel and endorsing the candidacy of French President Emmanuel Macron. In late 2017, he launched the Obama Foundation, which will help create the Barack Obama Presidential Library, support local organizations, and provide scholarships for low-income youth. There is still some uncertainty over Barack Obama's legacy. Sure, he will always be the first African-American president in U.S. history, but his signature legislative accomplishments—the Affordable Care Act, the Paris Climate Agreement, and the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals— have all been overturned or significantly weakened, leaving very little for Obama to show over eight years as president. But Obama should be given credit for stabilizing the U.S. economy in his first term, helping to avoid a second Great Depression and scaling back military forces in both Iraq and Afghanistan, which ultimately led to the final withdrawal of American forces from both countries by the late 2010s but perhaps the biggest thing that can be taken away from Obama's presidency is the stability it provided. For eight years, Obama did what is mostly expected of presidents, to steer the ship of state and remain a stable figure for Americans to look towards. There were no major scandals, though there were plenty of minor ones, and there was no constant turnover of cabinet officials or White House staff. There were no late-night tweets coming out of the Oval Office no unhinged remarks directed at media personnel, and his foreign policy, though lacking in some ways, was basically the same foreign policy American presidents had used since Richard Nixon. Barack Obama simply was. And despite all the criticisms and outside noise surrounding him and his administration, perhaps what Americans found most comforting was simply knowing they had a president they could rely on in stressful and turbulent times because sometimes just being a reliable figurehead is enough. Next time, we will discuss the last president in the fair category, a president who, very much like Obama, entered office with grandiose plans to completely remake America in a more progressive image, but who would soon quickly find out that sometimes world events end up shaping presidencies, and to try and fight those events doesn't always work out so well.